1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Leslie Waters, and my guest today is Zachary Dolishall, author of the new book, In the Kingdom of Shoes, Batya, Zlin, Globalization, 1894 to 1945, published in 2022 by University of Toronto Press. Welcome to the podcast, Zach.
2: Well, thank you. Thanks for having me, Leslie.
1: So first, let me tell you a little about our author. Zachary Dolechal is a historian of the long 19th and short 20th centuries. His primary research interest concerns how industrial capitalism changed humanity. National identification, disciplinary systems, consumerism, high modernism, and democracy accompany uh, his interests. And he earned his PhD in history at the University of Texas at Austin in 2012. He's been teaching at Sam Houston State University ever since then. So, uh, Zach, I'd like to start by asking you how, uh, how you got interested in Bhatia and uh, what it is for listeners who might not be familiar.
2: Right. Especially for an American audience, people probably have not heard the name Bhatia. Um, for those who live elsewhere, such as Canada, India, especially Indonesia, it's a household name. Um, and Bhatia is a shoe company that globalized in really the interwar period. That's when it reached all over uh, the world. Um, but it had a complicated uh, start and stop in the United States. So that's what it is. It's still a major international shoe company today. Um, it's found especially in places like Africa, India, as I already mentioned, and Southeast Asia. And what got me to this topic was uh, initially a project, an article that I wrote as a graduate student on the New York World's Fair, the Czechoslovak Pavilion at the New York World's Fair in 1939-1940, and as I was doing research for, for this in the archives, uh, a clear story emerges as one company takes over the exhibition um, as the, the exhibit goes from, you know, this display of the nation of Czechoslovakia and all of its glory as these pavilions were meant to do to one of an exiled pavilion, kind of orphan pavilion as the Czechoslovak. Uh, government is now in exile and the country is occupied by Nazi Germany. Um, this transnational corporation centered in a medium-sized town in Moravia, Zlin, uh, the, the company Batia, of course, they are the the organizers. They sort of take over the exhibit and then in turn have the exhibit taken over from them later in 1940 by Sort of more aggressive Czech political nationalists who want to change the the meaning of the exhibit. So as I'm researching this, I'm thinking, what is this company, right? As an American who gets really into Czech studies, and you know, I'm not going to go too far down that road about about me, but um, I I had not really heard or or experienced Batya. Because interestingly enough, at that time you could not really buy ba- a lot of Bata products in the Czech Republic. They had a flagship store re, sort of repatriated uh, to them, if you will, um, after the fall of communism. But their shoe production uh, capacity had all been nationalized, and they did not return to make shoes in the Czech Republic. So even a lot of Czechs. While they knew Bhatia, they didn't really know what had happened to Bhatia, right, after World War II. Uh, so, yeah, it was really this big question mark. And I thought, OK, I got to know more about this company. How does one company come to dominate the organization, but also the floor space of this big you know, national exhibit? Um, and so pulling at that thread, I realized, oh, this is a great story. This is very interesting indeed. Um, so that's how I got to Bhatia. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I, when I heard about this book being uh, published, I thought, you know, this is fantastic because this is something that's most definitely needed. And I, I just think that it's so clever how you've organized it. And I really like how you're able to combine social history, political history, local and international history, all into one book. Uh so there's a lot of different ways we might categorize it, but at the broadest level, how do you think of your book? How would you sort of describe it in terms of where it fits into historiographical traditions?
2: Well, that's a good question and and it as you hinted, it it really touches on a lot of historiographical traditions. And so that was a real challenge in writing the book. Where where do I put my focus and what sort of, uh, you know, body of literature do I really Dig into. And I would say that at its core, this is a story of industrial capitalism. It's a story that is quite familiar to other industries, um, especially textile industries, um, where you have this kind of local skilled uh, craftsmen reaching out, finding the latest technology, in this case, adapting it. To their local, um, you know, production uh, capacity expanding through the use of industrial technology and the mentality of uh, of this industrial capitalism, and then just going global, right? Going really big. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of historiography, there were two works that really that really stood out to me while I was writing this and that were my, my guides. Um, one was Sven Beckert's work, um, Empire of Cotton. Uh, that, that book, um, very much helped me make sense of the story as he is looking at the, the very interesting interplay between the, the cotton areas of production and the industrial uh, manufacturing centers uh, of Western and central Europe. Um, this too, I don't go into in the book where all of the batya material is coming from, although I could have, and that, that would be a very interesting book. Instead, I'm focusing on the industrial centers of production. Uh, but still that, that kind of, understanding of how industrial capitalism changes the relationships, uh, and really starts to integrate these, these markets, um, into big, 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 uh, I, I keep using the word global, but that's really at the heart of this, this, these global networks. Right. And, and so I think that's one really important book for me. Um, and another, is James C. Scott's work on high modernism, the idea that there is this sort of uh, trajectory in what Max Weber would say in capitalism, that calculated rationality. There's this trajectory there towards a sort of hyper rational utopian kind of dreaming. And we see it, you know, uh, Scott points his finger at Tanzania with this big collectivization campaign in the 70s and 60s, 1960s and 70s, also in Brasilia um, and, of course, the Soviet Union, et cetera, et cetera. But these ideas that you can sort of perfect humanity with the use of machines, with the use of uh, the, this rational, uh, systemized um, um, society everybody has a place, everybody's working in tandem with a machine, a kind of a robust belief in science. And that is going to bring about a kind of harmonious world that will alleviate the tension um, that's inherent really in, in industrial production between workers and management. And so Batya, as you know, I know that literature and I'm, re- I'm reading into the archives over and over is, is sort of, uh, uh, touching on those ideas that, you know, uh, machines will make our lives better. Humans have to adapt to machines um, and, and vice versa. Right. It, it, in other words, there's this sort of uh, promise of a better life through technical innovation, industrial um, sort of, you know, uh, it, it, the, the factory at the center of our lives. Um, and, and, and this promise, right, this kind of utopian promise that workers and management will no longer be divided. Um, society will not be divided among economic class anymore because of the, the incredible output that industrial production can give us. So that really hit with the, the high modernist idea um, for me. So James C. E. Scott uh, Sven Becker. And then, of course, there are a lot more I could go into, but I, I think I'll just stop with those two. Yeah.
1: Great. Thank you. Um, so let's uh, s- sort of start our, our deep dive uh, of your book here with, uh, with the deep dive you start the book with, the city or, or town, I suppose, of Zlean. And it's perhaps somewhat unlikely start as a manufacturing hub. So why Zlein? And how did Batya get its start?
2: So, as I say in the book, Zlin is this kind of smallish, out-of-the-way town. And even today, it's hard to get to. I mean, it it really is not a convenient location. Um, And so it is unlikely that that would be the center of the largest shoe manufacturer in the world in the 1930s. Um, But so it has... A lot to do though with a an individual, and that's Tomas Batya, his brother and sister as well, and they're all kind of grown up in the handicraft shoe world of Moravia. Um, so they know shoes, you know. They they have these are skilled cobblers from a skilled or excuse me, shoemakers from a skilled shoemaker family. Um, and so that's important. And, and a lot of the story of, of this, these kinds of uh, companies that grow quickly and embrace these technological changes are very, they're kind of similar that a group of people that already know the business, um, adapt and apply technology to their, to their craft. And that's the same here, um, why it happens in Zlin just is that Tomas Batya and his, you know, his brother and sister move there. Um, and he, Tomash is, especially he gets really interested in new techniques of making shoes. And so he starts traveling around. Um, but Zlin is, is, is a, a cattle town. So there's lots of leather. And leather is central to making shoes, so it had already attracted a fair number of shoemakers, handicraft shoemakers. It, it's not as if there were there was nobody making shoes in the area, so that's important. Um, however, you know you could go to a variety of small towns in Moravia and find fairly similar situations where you have small um companies making shoes by hand. Uh, so so really it's about an individual here um who lo- is is looking beyond his kind of narrow confines. And, and as he goes on that journey, he's really convinced and struck by what he what he sees. Um, and it, the the first is in Germany he encounters these um, new inventions like Matzlinger's Lasting Machine. Um, almost all of these are invented in the United States, by the way, the welt sole stitcher. Um, th- they, they come about right around the 1880s, 1890s. This is the big boom in shoe production. And so he sees these in the early 1900s. He can't afford them, but he realizes, okay, this is the future um, but no one else in Austria-Hungary, the big, large multinational empire, is doing it, and there's really not a big push for it either. I found a lot in the trade journals where they were they were saying, "Yeah, people are making stuff by machine in Germany and in you know the United States," but it's kind of a fad. You know, people like their shoes custom to their feet, and it's you know it's it's a tradition that isn't soon to be replaced, um, which of course was totally wrong. And and what happens is as Bhatia begins to Im- bring in these machines, as he's able to get enough capital, he's he just floods the local markets with cheap, sleek, modern looking, you know, the Oxford style shoes and they do really well. Um, yeah, so... That's kind of why lean.
1: Great, thanks. Uh, so this is a, a company that starts starts to take off in the late 19th century, and uh, it's well poised to play a role in the First World War. So uh, tell us a little bit about World War One and the fate of the company.
2: So as Batya goes into World War One, it has several things that have happened to it um, as it kind of develops and industrializes its production. Um, One is it turns away the management of Batya and his brother. They turn away from social democracy. Um, Interestingly enough, they were social Democrats in the early, uh, early years, 1905. Um, But Batya goes to the United States in 1905 and he has this experience where he romanticizes the american worker and the fact the shoe factory experience in lean uh massachusetts lynn massachusetts sorry (laughs) Uh, lynn massachusetts And, and he comes back and he's an acolyte now of americanization and that creates this big split in the company and a lot of uh, his employees that are very good, they're veteran shoemakers, they leave. He starts preaching, Tomas starts preaching um, efficiency and speed, these kinds of Taylorist ideas, you know, Frederick Winslow Taylor, the great time expert, um, he's really pushing this stuff, He, you know, we have to increase our output per worker, et cetera, et cetera, really start looking at time management. And so there's this big divide that happens in the company before World War I. That has an effect of kind of pushing Bhatia as an outlier in his local confines. Um, but it also has the effect of sort of allowing him to fully implement his vision. And Bhatia begins to take on workers from the surrounding countryside that have no experience at all, right? The great shift in industrial production from skilled to unskilled labor happens just in about three or four years for Batia um, and 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 that sort of you know philosophical difference about over Americanization it it you know carves out, creates a new company in Zle, and then Batya though really kind of effectively controls uh, the vision of the company at that point. And so when World War I breaks out, Um, They're in a good position to mass produce shoes, which is of the utmost concern for the Austro-Hungarian state. And Batya goes to Vienna and the way he describes it is he's running around from one office to another, you know, one state office to another, trying to talk to somebody to get a contract. And it takes him three days of this. He says he sleeps on benches outside of officials' offices and all of the, you know, obviously it's a very chaotic time. This is right when war is declared and breaks out. Um, and, and so he finally, you know, gets the right person to sign a contract. And it's like 50,000 pairs of cavalry boots. And then he takes that contract back. He can't even produce that much yet. Mm -hmm. They're not up to scale. So he kind of contracts that out further to the other local shoemaking enterprises, including the one that was carved out of his split. But by winning that contract um, and then getting the Austrian, the Austro Hungarian state behind his production, it sort of unleashes this. you know this this vision that he has now. He has the state to back it. He's got uh, total uh, uh, access to Austro-Hungarian capital, and he's able to get the Austrian state to recognize shoe his shoe workers as uh, highly important uh, to the war effort, so they're not drafted. So essentially, mm-hmm. he's saving lives of the people in the valley. Um, And, uh, you know, people that that work for them. That also, there's also a story there where towards 1916, they begin employing Russian prisoners of war. And that experience kind of further accelerates this really tightly controlled work environment um, that that Batia will become quite notorious for all over the world. Um, where it's it's the desire of the company to make legible all of their employees. It kind of starts in World War one and then that will accelerate later. Um, and so that yeah, so that's what happens in World War one. So by the end of World War one, Latya is making, I, I I don't know. I, I, it's in the book, but it's something like 100,000 pairs of shoes every month. So they had a 50,000 pair order, and then they are able to ramp up to this massive um, production schedule and reach it. Um, because obviously, capital is unlocked, the people are protected, prisoners of war are brought in, and the, the whole thing just gets bigger and bigger um, to fuel the war effort.
1: So you've already hinted at a, a certain American influence in the company. Um, but Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the company's ethos and manufacturing techniques and this idea of botchism, as as you call it in the book. And I, I assume as the company also referred to its company ethos.
2: Yeah, right. So botchism... That's a big thread through the book, right? How that develops over time. And I make the claim that it's not really an evidence until after 1923, uh, when the company takes over the town politically. Um, But it it has its origins in this split that I r- was referring to. Uh, when Batya goes to the United States and lives there for a little over half a year, um, that's when the sort of the, you know, the origin of Bachism can be found. And it is about him seeing several things. One, that production has to be centered around the machine. So this machine centered way of working, um, two, that there needs to be a much less, um, especially, you know, in his context, a much less, uh, let me rephrase that. What he wants to do is break down barriers between managers and workers by essentially eroding unions. So the union membership, uh, trade union membership is almost 100 percent at his at his factory before he leaves. When he comes back, he sees that as not the American way. Um, What he doesn't see is that Lynn, Massachusetts, which is the cradle of industrial shoemaking, it's where all of the sort of big ideas kind of are first implemented in shoemaking it's rife with industrial labor problems. I mean, it, it's just like strikes left and right. It, the, the, um, was it the Knights of Labor have this big chapter there. I mean, Lynn, Massachusetts is also like the center of labor sort of conflict, but somehow that's a great mystery. Bati lives there, lives in that environment, works, uh, as just a regular shoemaker um, in Lynn and then comes back home. And what he's taken from that is that the union idea is wrong, that that is a divide between managers and workers. Um, and so instead of kind of supporting class divisions, the really, the goal of a modern company is to treat everyone like family. Um, right? And that will f- kind of further develop this sort of um, paternalistic idea. And and that, that will become central to baptism. He takes another American example. So if he learns the power of machinery from Lynn, he learns the power of paternalism from a shoe company called Indicott Johnson. And Indicott Johnson was one of the biggest shoe producers in in the world, but they were focused on the American market during this time. And especially after World War I, they take off and their big thing is the square deal where workers and management, they, they kind of sign into there's this implied deal where you are going to be taken care of from cradle to the grave. Your family's going to be taken care of. We're going to provide housing and medical Um, support for you and you're not going to leave because shoemaking has a high turnover because it's, it's not fun work really. I mean, there's not Mm -hmm. a lot of joy in doing this industrial shoemaking. Um, And I could go into that, but I'm, I'll leave that aside. So, so he takes Indicott Johnson's paternalism and, and the, the lessons of Lynn and blends them together. And then he starts sort of building this ideology from that. Um, that will, he'll start sprinkling other things on there as well. Um, but those are the two major sources for him. Uh, well, I should say there are really three because I left out another American uh, ex- uh, big wellspring and that's Ford. Um, mm-hmm. Henry Ford becomes his uh, idol and he writes letters to Ford and in his broken English, he's saying, I'll meet you anywhere, anywhere in the world at any time. You just say that place, I'll be there. Um, he has Ford's um, uh, biographies uh, printed in the local paper, the Batya controlled paper um, for years. I mean, just every year uh, there's, there's something from Ford translated and printed in the paper um, and so, what does he learn from Ford? Um, it's you know similar to what I, I already talked about, but this idea of a paternalistically managed company where boundaries between workers and managers have been broken down, the company provides um, a, a very kind of uh, understood and expected uh, base quality of life for their employees, and in turn the employees provide absolute loyalty. Um, and then of course machine production along the lines of, of Ford and, and, um, Indicott Johnson, this idea where you have a constant flow, uh, of, of goods uninterrupted of, of materials uninterrupted till the final product, um, And and that if one thing goes down, you have flexible assembly lines. That's a big breakthrough for Batya. So, yeah, I hope I answered that okay.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And actually, it raises another question. Um, So we're already starting to get part of the story of globalization here in terms of having influence from American companies. And obviously, that's going to only grow later on in your story. But it brings up the question of sources. So on the one hand, you have this very localized study. On the other hand, you have this global study. How did you find source material for uh, In the Kingdom of Shoes?
2: Yeah, I love that question. I love sources. I love talking about sources. source. Uh, okay, so I'll try to be brief and succinct. One of the beautiful things uh, about the nationalization of major companies in all over Eastern Europe after World War II is that those companies' archives became public record. So it's very hard to write good business histories because it's hard to access their internal archive. A lot of companies are reluctant to let historians like me poke around in their past. Um, there's things that you'll find, right. That aren't great. Uh, so it's, it's hard, but because of nationalization in really 1945, almost immediately after world war II, two, is nationalized, all of the company, uh, records that were in Zleen became part of the state archive system. And today they remain so. And and anyone who has a particular interest can go to Zlin and go to the lovely little chateau there uh, that their archives are housed in and go through just lots of lots of stuff. So that's the primary source material that I'm using. And of course, they have people all over the world interacting with headquarters. So you get cables from everywhere, especially in the 1930s, just coming in. There's lots of conversation about other places. That's great, a great source. Um, there, there is because of World War II. There is a great collection of stuff in our own. Well, I say our. I'm an American citizen, right? So in the United States National Archives, there is a really rich collection on what the United States and the other allied countries do to Batia during World War II. Batia becomes a problem for them, um, which I go into, of course, uh, in the last chapter. But so that's a great source uh, material. I also went, though, to the... Indicott Johnson archives in Syracuse and looked for how Indicott Johnson was looking at Batia because the story of globalization is so interesting for this company because it's a story of ad- adaptation, right, of, of Batia looking and learning from American methods, bringing it back home, applying those, sort of uh, knocking everybody out of competition in a lot of ways with those methods But then, you know, through his, their own, the company's own um, sort of innovations, they come into the United States and freak the, the major shoe producers out because they're beating them at their own game. So it's this sort of, you know, return, right? This big time return with a vengeance. So I wanted to see how Indicott Johnson thought about that, which was fascinating because it was of friendship and sort of, it, honestly, like George F. Johnson, the head of Indicott Johnson, he was more or less saying, oh, yeah, we don't have to worry about this company. I've met Thomas several times. He's fine, nice little Czech guy. And then a little bit later, he's trying to raise all of the political clout he can to block Batia from coming into the United States. Um, finally, and and this is something that's so great about our moment as historians, and hopefully we'll continue. There's so much to find from your own uh, your 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 own office, and that I, by that I mean, of course, online research. So I was able to go and find things from India and Indonesia and. I didn't go to these places, but, you know, I was able to find some really good sources about Batya coming in. Um, Yeah, so that's the bulk of my my source, Uh, yeah.
1: Fantastic, thank you. Yeah, it's always really interesting to see uh, the sort of afterlife of nationalization and how helpful it is to historians. (laughs) Uh, But sort of back to the narrative here, I'd like you to take us through the, the early years of the founding of, of the Czechoslovak state and um, just reflect on the ways that the Batyak company did or did not mesh with the ideological foundations of that new state. So, right, you've got this company that did very well in the imperial period, but uh, there's sort of a new game in town. So what's the story there?
2: Yes. So, Upon the foundation of Czechoslovakia, I mean, Zlin is Czechoslovak. I mean, it's Czech, really, Czech speaking, although it's very, they're, they're kind of local ethnicities blending in to make Czechness, I guess you could say. So the majority of the population is, they're flag waving, you know, proud to be independent. That's the the overall feel. But the company is really, company leadership is has kind of, Distanced themselves from Czech nationalism over the you know the period of time since they brought in these American ideas. And it very quickly kind of becomes manifest in local politics in Zlin. Zlin, because of it its kind of working industrial class atmosphere. Um, favors and is very supportive of the Bolshevik revolution. A lot of their um, uh, uh, and the communist party forms in 1919 out of the social democratic party of the area. And as it forms, it takes over the, the city, right? So the town council is run by the communist party, which is not what Batia wants at all. Um, and there is this real intense um, local political game where the town council, which is poor uh, by all means, is, is trying to extract as much as they can from Batya, who is trying to do as little as possible for the town council, right? Uh, so there's that kind of local antagonism um, that happens between you know, 1918, 19 and 1923, that, that window of time. But there's also this bigger story of the loss of the large internal market of Austria-Hungary. And that creates a severe crisis for the company. They have to really think about what they're going to do as all of their export channels or really their internal market is, is destroyed. And they have all of these shoes piling up in their warehouses um, and what they decide to do is they're going to cut the price of their shoes in half, and they're going to cut the price, uh, excuse me, they're going to cut the wages of their workers in half. Um, and in, in return, they're going to cut the price of food at their canteen, uh, their kind of local cafeteria that feeds all, almost all of their workforce and lean every day that price is also going to go in half. So it's this kind of big moment and, and obviously it leads to a little bit of instability locally, but it pays off in the long run because they're able to move their, their product uh, out of their warehouses. They're able to kind of stabilize their accounts and survive uh, the, the momentary crisis that happens. Um, from then, they're able to kind of build back up their export market um, in the 1920s. Um, it, however, pretty quickly, um, with by 1928, we see the rise of economic nationalism again. Um, and again, they have to face this problem of high tariff walls, quota systems, things blocking their channels to sell their shoes abroad. And they can't survive the number of shoes they're making. They can't continue uh, only uh, you know, supplying the Czechoslovak market. So they're really thinking, okay, you know, how do we get these shoes out of, out of Czechoslovakia? They saturate the Czechoslovak market to where very few shoe producers can even exist. Um, at one point, they're responsible for 96% of all shoes bought in Czechoslovakia, which is kind of a staggering number, right? <laughs> like you can't, I mean, that's hard to even find a shoe not made by Batia. Um, so, you know, but the, the goal, right, industrial capitalism is to expand, expand, accumulate, accumulate, and and they need bigger markets. So so they, they survive that first uh, crisis, but then later they have another one to, to solve.
0: Great. Thank
1: you. So you've hinted at the, uh, the sort of Batya as a local political machine, perhaps, as, uh, as they move to uh, take back that city council. And uh, you have a great chapter on kind of everyday life in Zlin during this high watermark, perhaps, for, for Batya in the in the 20s. So how would you describe the relationship between the company, its workers, and, and the city itself?
2: Yeah, so as Batya is able to stabilize itself um, in that really uncertain world of the early 1920s, um, it becomes the, the center of stability for workers in Zlin. Other companies are struggling uh, the other shoe companies are struggling. And as it kind of gains the, I guess, the competitive advantage in, in Zlin, it begins to see itself increasingly as a, as, well, tomasz fatya especially, as having to take a political role, that the antagonism between the, the town council and the company cannot continue. There, it's just too, there's too much. And Bhatia begins to think about its role um, as not just, right, the, this kind of large local company, but as the, and, and again, it's happening all in the early 20s, as the answer to the problems of the modern age, that, that their system Batia increasingly thinks that his system is going to ameliorate the problems of, of people's lives. And we're going to rationalize the the valley uh, of this little river called the Drebnice. But but so to do that, you can't have an antagonistic town council. And in 1923, he says, I'm going to run for, for mayor and I'm going to have a list of candidates for all the council positions. And there's a, a big push campaign and in the book, there, there's this image, right, uh, that I love from the newspaper uh, during the campaign. And it's of Bhatia pulling the city up out of the muck of, of politics. And he has the political party sort of in the muck. And here he is, like, lifting the, the city out of politics. And this is a central sort of problem for Bhatism is democracy how do you rationalize a society when you have the messiness of representational democracy? How do you resolve that? Um, And so for Batya's solution is to take over uh, the, the representational government of the area um, and, and put in a, a political, uh, and they call themselves the Batyopsi or the Batya people in English. That would be, and, and the Batya people, right, they're supposed to be above, they have no political parties. Um, and and so, you know, uh, they take over the council, they win pretty resoundingly uh, against the communists, the second largest party, and they quickly go about marginalizing the communists, um, finding ways to sort of hem them in and, and, and ultimately, this is a bigger story than just lean, but ultimately the communists will be outlawed for periods of time during the history of Czechoslovakia, the first Republic of Czechoslovakia, and they'll be able to just directly target them and have their police agents arrest them for distributing communist uh, propaganda. So so that's kind of the, the thought there. Okay, we, we need to sort of push our way into this so that then we can rationalize the whole society and they go pretty far. They, they keep that going through as they get power of the city through the twenties. And they do things like they go after alcohol. They go after uh, gambling. They go after vagrants. They go after uh, loose women. I talk a lot about that because they're very interested in that stuff. They have inspectors going around and checking out, who's, you know, uh, having an affair, and what have you. Um, and, and so they start growing. And, of course, correspondingly, they're building company housing quickly. And that's what's so unique about Zlin today is if you ever visit Zlin, is this company housing. They're these two-story kind of squat, all brick, um, smallish, uh, batia houses, they call them. And mostly there are duplexes, but they're building them in the 20s and, and of course, the 30s as well. But they're, they're controlling where people live and who gets the keys to these places. And through that power, they're really able to exert a lot of influence on people's everyday lives.
1: Right. So there's this whole surveillance strategy happening. And I I mean, I assume part of the deal here is that they're trying to influence uh, behavior towards a kind of ideal worker. What would you say is the characteristics of the ideal worker for for the Batya system?
2: Yeah. And so that's a great question. I would say, to simplify it, it's loyalty. And and later, especially when the transition happens from Tomosh Bhatya to Jan Bhatya um, in 1932, Tomosh dies in a plane crash and his half-brother Jan takes over the company. And Jan gets really, really into social engineering. Um, and he comes up with lots of lots of rules and things, and, and, and he's constantly giving speeches about ideal the ideal worker, but really at the bottom of it is just loyalty. You're, you're more or less apolitical. Um, You, you, you're active in your leisure time. Um, They very much combat the idea of laziness. They think laziness is this association with the backward past. You're sober. Um, You either totally abstain or you only drink beer on occasion. Um, That kind of thing. Uh, but more than anything, you're just you're just loyal to the company. You you don't you don't say anything wrong about what's going on at Batya. Um, you you follow your directives. You you work hard. But even if you make mistakes in your work, if if you're if you prove yourself loyal, you're not going to get fired. It's when you you break the, the the rules and the rules are many. So they have not. It's not just how best to put the, you know, the lasting machine, uh, into the right size mold or whatever. It's, you need to have a tidy garden. If you have keys to this house, uh, you need to have a good relationship with your spouse. Um, you need not to have dirty kids going to school. This kind of whole, Um, moral and hygienic idea is applied to all of the workers. Um, And the the reality is most workers live in dormitories. Most workers at the big Batia headquarter plant in Zlin, they live in single person dormitories, single person housing. And the only way for them to move out of that in the company is to get married. They have a marriage policy. So housing is a big deal, as I've already said. Um, But these single people living in the dorms, they have a tight restrictions on where they can go, what they can do in the dorms, et cetera. And their, um, their, their, their kind of breaking of those rules is a sign of disloyalty in the eyes of management, right? It's not just your you know, a troubled person or whatever, but it's, you're disloyal to Bhatia. And increasingly in the 1930s, when people become desperate for the stable employment that Bhatia can provide, the company gets ever more powerful in its ability to say, okay, you know, you had an affair, you're out, um, or, or what have you. Yeah.
1: I mean, so much of what you're describing in a in a different political context, right, sounds like like the social engineering that's that's being experimented on uh, within Germany um, by the Nazi Party and you know any sort of uh, fellow travelers are are so interested in um, in this kind of social engineering. So, uh, what about? The relationship between these new forms of, of politics and how does Batya fit into the political landscape of the 1930s that's so dramatically changing?
2: Yeah, so this is where um, I, I get into a little bit of trouble um, with people that really, you know, there is a core core group, mostly Czech. Um, that that follow the Batya story, and there are still people that are consider themselves Batyopsi, Batia people. They, you know, they have, they really have um, deep affinity for the Batia story. And I could talk even more about where Batia went in Czech society. I do at the very end, at the conclusion. But okay, so all of the evidence suggests that Tomas Batia. He encouraged this kind of paternalistic thing, but really he wasn't so much interested in a full-on social engineering project um, that the, more, the darker sides of this don't start until after 1932. Um, there are some dark sides but it, it before that, but they're, they're mostly things that we would see in a lot of companies, big companies all over the world uh, that are industrially producing things. Um, so it's it's kind of more in the in the 32 and on and Jan begins this very interesting political journey kind of meandering around political ideologies but in the middle of the 30s he becomes very interested in, in italian fascism and he travels to Italy several times and he writes these glowing reviews of what he's seeing in Italy. Um, the, so in the Batia world, in the 30s anyway, it becomes sort of, you know, far-right ideas are really popular among batya management. Far-right ideas like we should take the unemployed and put them into work camps and build big infrastructure projects. That's what Batya is writing about. He writes this, basically a political platform in a book called, we will build a state for, um, uh, what is it? 20 million, 20 million people. Um, so he, you know, he's thinking about ways to expand the population of Czechoslovakia, but it's, it's a, it's a really interesting book. Um, and it has all these beautiful maps and everything. And it, it's all at, at its core is we need to take, use the state to employ out of work people to build big infrastructure. Um, and wouldn't it be great if all of that infrastructure ran through Zleen? <laughs> is part of fun, that book. <laughs> but, but anyway, so, so he's starting to flirt with fascism in the, 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 you know, the, the Soviet state is anathema. That's the worst kind of thing that can happen. They're constantly telling their, their people that life in Russia is in, in the Soviet union is just hell on earth. Um, but there is a real antagonism to what, what's going on uh, in Germany. So the, the Nazi state is very much looked at as a problem as reckless. And a lot of that has to do with the intense nationalism of what the Nazi state is, is, um, preaching. Um, and so this, this sort of creates kind of a weird, you know, dance and of course, Austria and Italy and, um, you know, Hungary a little bit are doing this dance as well in the thirties of sort of coming together in the far, in a far right, uh world view, but still keeping Nazi Germany at bay and saying, well, we're not there. We're not, we're not supporting this. And that's pretty much where Batia is as well for, for a good while. However, he's in a much more sort of open uh, society as opposed to Austria or Italy. And so he's getting a lot of criticism from these views. People are not just going along with it and being silent especially from mainstream political parties centered elsewhere out of not in Zling. Um So th- that's kind of the political world of Batya and it will get the company into trouble when World War II starts.
1: Right. Yeah, I definitely want to get there. But before before that, uh, I, definitely, I, I want to talk about such a big part of your book, right? The globalization of the Batya system and the global reach of this company. So tell us, tell us about the global Bhatia.
2: So as I mentioned before, the, the big crisis of Bhatia in the interwar period happens with the great depression, but even a little bit before when governments come into power all over Europe, mostly is where the problem is that see Bhatia as a threat. They see globalization in general as a threat to their nation. Um, And they see it as a kind of invasion, a flooding, right, of their market. And the shoemaker has an interesting place in society, Uh, much like, you know, um, other handicrafts, uh, it You know, they're viewed as these sort of national symbols, and shoes can be viewed as national symbols, right? And so there's a kind of protective mentality already there. Well, anyway, long story short, tariffs go up all over the place, first in Yugoslavia and then all over where Batya is selling its shoes. And what the company does is decides on a really um, – Inventive and effective strategy of jumping those barriers by building mini factories, factory towns, in those countries, and so they they understand and they get a good reading of the local laws that as long as you can take an upper and put it, uh, you know, on a sole, you know, you basically. Any kind of part of the assemblage of shoes, then you will skirt the tariff or the quota. And you can sell that shoe as made in, you know, whatever, France, Switzerland, England, etc. And so they embark on a very aggressive expansion. And that's really unique in world history for the time. Most countries experienced the Great Depression as this massive contraction. But Batia goes the other way and looks at it as really an opportunity. Um, furthermore, what's interesting about Bhatia's globalization is that shoemakers like Bali in Switzerland, Indicott Johnson, International Shoe Machine, the big ones, they don't really bother at all with the global south, you know, which is a largely defined region. But um, places like India, Indonesia, Africa, they're not really on their radar At all, right? At all. But Batia in the early 1930s, 1931 especially, he goes on this, Thomas Batia goes on this grand trip, this huge airline journey, um, all the way down to uh, what is today Jakarta, Indonesia and back. And he comes back with this very clear-eyed vision that this is the future. This is our market, not just to sell shoes, but to make them as well. And so they begin building factories in India, in what will will be Pakistan, what will be India, right? Um, And what will be Indonesia. Um, And he's using these imperial pathways, right? Kind of safe for the white European to go on. But also he is able to present his company as not imperialist to local elites, local nationalist elites who love it. They want this kind of technical innovation, this this break from traditional handicrafts. Um, I think we have kind of a common misconception of of what Indian nationalist leaders sort of thought about their future because too much attention is on Gandhi. You know, most of them are, they want to modernize. And so they're embracing Vatya um, and, and he, so he's in this really sweet spot, right. Where he can mm-hmm. use imperial pathways, but then also present himself as, you know, I'm a Czech I'm just from this small little country. What do you, you know? I, I have nothing to do with, you know, the empire. Um, and so that's really interesting and unique. Um, and what it allows Batya to do is survive, um, past the great depression, thrive in the 1930s, survive past world war II. And the great di- disruption there survived nationalization of their headquarters in Zlin, and continue to produce shoes today. They're still, as I mentioned at the beginning of this, this international company.
1: Yeah, it's an, a really incredible story of of uh, of innovation here and adaptation. Um, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I do want to ask about the Second World War and and you know, the crisis of Czechoslovakia, the dismantling of the country and loss of territory to its neighboring states. How does Batya navigate that?
2: Yeah, that is, to me, one of the most interesting stories in the book is how World War II affects the company. Um, Initially, um, Batya has this, Sort of, you know, we're going to fight, we're going to defend Czechoslovakia. And then as that crumbles and falls apart through, you know, I won't go into all of that, Uh, but uh, as it crumbles and falls apart, uh, Batia is in a, a position to where they have the capital to move and they try to do that. And where they want to go is the United States, right? The kind of cradle of their innovation and ideas. So they want to go back uh, in a way. Um, and they pick a place called bell camp, Maryland, and they start moving people over there. The best and the brightest young people in go over there, but they do it more or less illegally. A lot of the movement of people is not up to par with the immigration and naturalization laws. And so they get the people to bell camp, Maryland through, uh, essentially tourist visas to go see the pavilion at the New York World's (laughs) Fair. Uh And so they come in as tourists and then they're, they're in bell camp actually training and and helping build this new planned headquarters. The United States, as this headquarters is being built, the major shoemakers launch this effort to ban Batya more or less from the American market um Great Britain you know this is this is before the US is is in World War 2 but after Czechoslovakia has been occupied and right the allies are at war and so Great Britain has this thing where they they go through an intermediary in Switzerland with the head of the company Jan Batia, and they want money a money guarantee and it's some like hundred thousand pounds it's not an insignificant chunk of money um and they also want a statement to say you know i support the allied cause more or less and i'm not going to do business with the axis powers and he won't do it he hymns a hymns and haws he he says oh i can't possibly pay that much money to you which is totally rubbish they have They have plenty of money that wouldn't really affect anybody's bottom line. Not to mention they have this really significant gold deposit in Zleen, just solid gold deposit there that is smuggled out in a a very interesting way by Maria Batya, which I don't talk about at all in the book. I just couldn't quite fit it in. I, I didn't know. Anyway, but so they have the money, but Jan just doesn't want he, you know, he says, this is too dangerous for my people in Zlin. That's his excuse. I'm not going to do it. Meanwhile, Tomasz Fatia's son, um, who's also, he's, he's a junior, um, but everybody calls him Tomik. He goes to Canada and starts another company in Canada. And as he's starting another company in Canada, um, he does everything right. He basically says, we're for the allies. We're going to make shoes for, you know, the mil- Canadian military. We'll do whatever you need. And what Bhatia has that no one else in the world has at the time is rubber production technology for boots, for army boots. They have perfected the vulcanization process for boots. And the U.S., they want to kick Bhatia out entirely, but then they realize they have a technology that no one else knows how to do. So we'll keep them in in Maryland, but we're going to keep them small. As the U.S. gets involved, Jan Batia then is is. Um, – I'm sorry, I, I should go back. He's put on a blacklist by the Allies, by England, because he doesn't do what they want him to do. So that creates all kinds of problems. When the U.S. gets involved, they carry it over to their blacklist of companies that are considered enemy property. That creates a giant headache for everyone in the batya empire, right? They have to – negotiate with the state and the company, all kinds of flows of material get broken down. I mean, it really looks like the company's going to collapse. There are people in all over saying, we haven't been paid. (laughs) We haven't gotten our wages. And I have one thing in the book from people that basically say, can we just start selling our inventory for our wages and get out of this place entirely? I mean, it's really kind of one of the, the most tenuous moments for the company. Um, and I go into what's going on in Zleen, but I'll leave that for future readers, I hope. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it's a great example of when push comes to shove, like this sort of transnational cosmopolitan idea of corporate culture will be tested in times of war and they will be forced to make uh, decision you know whose side are you on and that kind of trying to prevaricate and i explain that because well the company is steeped in this idea of kind of national indifference like it's they're not saying national nationality doesn't matter or we're not gonna or we're gonna pretend it it doesn't exist but they're saying we are indifferent to the demands of any one nation we'll play ourselves up as swiss if that sells shoes which they do you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so when this n- moment happens, uh, they're kind of reluctant to say, "Oh, yeah, we're this or we're that," um, and the result is they almost the company almost gets totally destroyed. But Tomash Batya Jr. and the circle around him of of Batyotsi, they save the day by presenting themselves as faithful allies. And then, what essentially the the powers, the Allied powers decide is, we're just going to separate the company off from Jan and Jan Batia is is a, a forced uh, basically out, and he goes to Brazil, which is a kind of quasi-fascist state at the time, where he finds a home and builds some more factories. But all over the world, the enterprise shifts. To Thomas Batya Jr., so that's the that's the great saga, and there's there's more to it, but yeah, that's that's what goes on in the World War II.
1: Thanks. Yeah, I I could ask you questions probably all day, but um, there's probably work to be done out there somewhere. So um, we should wrap up, and uh, to do so, I'd like to ask you what you're working on next, and also if you happen to have any book recommendations. Uh, for the audience on, on um, you know, works on, on Eastern Europe or on um, history of capitalism or, or anything like that?
2: Okay, sure. Um, well, in terms of a book recommendation on capitalism... Uh, Jurgen Kotka. He has a fantastic short book called Capitalism, and I recommend everybody to read that. It's really accessible and and wonderful. The aforementioned Sven Becker, um, Empire of Cotton. It's one of my favorite books um, ever. Um, Terra Zyra's uh, work, is very influential online and she's written several books. Um, The latest one that I've read, I I'm unfortunately going to, to butcher the the title. It's about uh, immigration the Great Migration. The Great Migration. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah the Great Migration. Mm-hmm. So I highly recommend that. Of course, Kidnap Souls. Um, Peter Judson's The Habsburg Empire um, has started this really interesting conversation among scholars of Austria-Hungary. Uh, there's, I, I just I, there's so much good work uh, going on of Eastern Europe. I'm specifically right now working on a project. That is a pedagogical project for a series called "Reacting to the Past." And, and that uh, is a, a, a kind of consortium that encourages uh, game, the gaming the classroom. And so students are given these historical characters and they're put in a situation, and then they have to think through the problems of that moment as their characters would more or less do. Um, I've, I employ that in my classes quite a bit, my junior level classes, especially and I, and I just love it. So I'm writing one of those, which is a lot of work as it turns out, oh, because <laughs> you have to come up with the characters and the instructor's manual and then the game book itself, which is a book. I mean, it's just a book. So, so I'm finishing that up. And, and what that's going to be about is the Austrian, well, the Cislethanian, the Austrian half of Austria-Hungary parliament, the Reichsrat from 1911 to 1914. And so it really covers this big debates over social policy, national policy, and then foreign policy as well. So it's it's been a lot of fun to write. I, I but as I said, I I started it and I thought it was going to be one thing and now I'm like, "Oh, okay, I still have no way I got to do this, I got to do that." But that's that's what I'm on to right now. Um, but but in that uh, there's so many good works coming out um, on Austria Hungary right now. I think it's the the kind of field that that's the hottest in uh, East Central Europe. Um, uh, really exciting stuff. I think where the field goes next though is going to be the socialist period. I think there's a lot to to still write about. There are a lot of good records. It, I mean uh, this story the batya story what happens is there as they're nationalized the, the shoes do not stop they continue to be produced under you know the state uh, sort of uh, company of Svit, which means like light um, and so that goes all the way up until I think it it goes out of business in like 2001 um, so there's there's a really interesting story there to be told like you know, how shoes are made under the socialist um, controlled state. And so, yeah, I think, I think that's where the field goes. You didn't ask me that, but I'm giving you that anyway. No,
1: that's, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: All right.
1: Well, thank you so much, Zach, for speaking oh, with me today. Both, yeah. The book is In the Kingdom of Shoes, Batya, Zleen Globalization, 1894 to 1945, published in 2022 by the University of Toronto Press. And I really can't recommend it highly enough uh, to you listeners. So this has been New Books in Eastern European Studies, and I'm Leslie Waters. Until next time.